The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Archaeology is often viewed as a fascinating, eclectic, yet ultimately quaint pursuit. This program explores archaeology from the perspective of professionals who demonstrate that in the 21st century, archaeology and its sub-disciplines may hold the key, not only to our past, but to our present and future. Welcome to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology, with your host, Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Spend the next hour exploring where we came from and where we're headed with a leading researcher and practitioner in the field. Now, here is Dr. Schuldenrein. Good afternoon, everyone. Thanks for taking the time to tune in to the program. This is Joe Schuldenrein. Pleased to bring you our another installment in our series, Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. Today's topic is the first of a series of career profiles. These are not necessarily going to be in succession, but we're going to examine the ways in which archaeologists are trained and how they pursue their particular career paths. An archaeological career <coughs> excuse me, is one that is unique in many ways insofar as it combines knowledge from really a great number of disciplines. You may recall in our introductory episode that we explored the unusual background that archaeologists have uh, where we touched upon the overlap between archaeology and uh, certainly many of the natural sciences, geology, biology, botany, anatomy, for example, as well as mathematics, statistics, computer science, social science, history, art, philosophy, and even politics. As a result of this, archaeologists come actually in all stripes, uh, depending on their particular training and expertise, and that uh, expertise and training is refined in graduate school. Uh, one can evolve into an archaeologist from another field if he or she sees the connection between the various disciplines and, and receive primary training and expertise in one of them. That's generally the way it goes. At, at that point, when they try to overlap, it is really up to the professional to pick a particular avenue of research and interest and hone that interest into actually a professional career. Classic cases in archaeology would include, for example, an anatomist who decides that he or she would like to address the question of human origins by looking at the changing skeletal structure of early human forms. That researcher is then interested in the archaeology of early people and is considered a uh, paleoanthropologist, which is a long way of saying an archaeologist who studies old bones of early humans. Another example would be the art historian who's initially interested in ancient Greek architecture and then moves on into Greek culture and settlement studies, configurations of houses and culture, and that person becomes a classical archaeologist. In today's episode, we're going to explore the interface, or the connection, if you will, between archaeology and geology. Now, these two disciplines are almost naturally wedded to one another, 
especially in cases where the oldest, and this is the most prominent situation, the oldest human artifacts are buried into the ground with any particular cultural association. Such locations are classified as Stone Age or, in the classic parlance, Paleolithic sites. And in this case, one of the most important things we need to know is how old these finds are. And we need to know the age of the dirt or the sediment the deposit in which the finds are located. So we call upon the geologist who's an expert in dating these types of sediments or natural formations, and archaeologists who combine these two skill sets are called, very naturally enough, geoarchaeologists. My guest today is a prominent geoarchaeologist whose career path bridges these two fields, and he's here to explain how he got interested in uh, in both sides of the discipline known as archaeology. Curtis Larson is a geoarchaeologist and geoarchaeologist who has re recently retired from a career with the U.S. Geological Survey. He has a, he has had a varied career as a geologist and archaeologist. He received his geological training at the University of Illinois in Urbana, receiving a bachelor's degree. Dr. Larson received his MA in Anthropology and Archaeology from Western Washington University and his doctorate in Anthropology from the University of Chicago. He has written several geological as well as archaeological papers. His book, Life and Land Use on the Bahrain Islands, published by the University of Chicago Press in 1983, is an early example of the fruitful interaction between geology and archaeology that has become known as geoarchaeology. Curtis continues to be interested in the impact of sea level variation on archaeological sites, and it's my pleasure to introduce uh, Kurt Larson. Curtis, thanks. thanks for being with us. Well, it's my pleasure to be here, Joe. Thanks very much for inviting me. Let's get down to the basics um, how did you get interested in archaeology to begin with, and uh, where did that move you to? Well, I first began to really learn about archaeology in detail uh, when my wife and I lived in Seattle, and this was during the late 1960s. And at that time, I was working as an engineering geologist, fresh out of uh, with my bachelor's degree in geology, and working on, on various engineering projects in the Seattle area. At that same time, there were archaeological excavations going on with a prominent rock shelter, the Marms Rock Shelter in eastern Washington, where there was perhaps 11,000 years of archaeological stratigraphy exposed in the site. And I found that to be very, very exciting uh, to me at the time. And I looked at working with archaeological stratigraphy, and I said to myself, this is certainly far more interesting and uh exciting than what I'd been doing in engineering, drilling holes for highway projects. and uh, <laughs> So that's sort of how that began. So tell us a little bit about how that, what archaeological stratigraphy is. I think uh, we want to bring the audience up to speed, the relationship between archaeology and the finds themselves and the dirt in which it's housed. Why don't you talk a little bit about that? Well, stratigraphy is simply the, the layering of different soil, uh, soil deposits in the ground and in the earth, and through time uh, this builds up. And in the case of human habitation sites, uh, we have human ha habitation artifacts, uh, fire hearths, which are in turn covered by uh, younger sediments, and this goes along to build up a more or less a classical layer cake of sediment, giving us a, a long record of in which to date archaeological occupations. 
So then you got excited about this, and obviously because you were working in a coastal situation, you uh, you were beginning to explore a connection between how coastlines changed, how archaeological sites form, and what the relationships might be between uh, changing sea levels and um, and archaeological sites. And then you developed, obviously, a uh, an interest in changing sea levels, and why don't you tell us a little bit about that and how sea level studies uh, took your interest and how you began to merge that interest with the archaeology itself? Okay, well, first of all, uh, I took a leap of faith and made a break from uh, my job as an engineering geologist and uh, entered uh, a graduate program at what is now Western Washington University in Bellingham, Washington. And this is on the shores of Puget Sound, and I became associated with the archaeologist in that anthropology department, and it was almost natural for me to begin looking at at, at coastal archaeological sites because that was the, the focus in the Pacific Northwest, looking at coastal maritime archaeological sites. And at the same time, that region, which had been glaciated with tongues of ice coming down the Puget Sound from, you know, from uh, Canada, had greatly depressed the Earth's crust, but the weight of, of glacier ice had depressed the Earth's crust, uh, so that the crust itself was rising in that region through time after glaciers had, had disappeared. At the same time, sea levels were as much as 300 feet lower during major, the last major glaciation uh, of the world. And sea levels were rising at the same time that, that the land was, was, was rising. So there was kind of a juxtaposition of land movements, coastal movements, and sea level rise going on. And it was clear that, that the past of, of coastal maritime peoples was going to be linked intimately with the shoreline positions of the past. So what I began to do was really begin to study uh, the, the interaction of raised shoreline positions in this part of Washington State and uh, comparing that with the eventually linking it into the sea level history, the more recent sea level history of the past five or 6,000 years, which gave us the more detailed records of, of coastal maritime archaeology in the Pacific Northwest. So that's sort of how I began. So you get to the situation where the oldest sites obviously would have been submerged at certain points when, when the sea level was uh, when the sea was farther out, farther out to the uh, to the west in this case, and then as the sea level rose, these sites gradually became submerged, and so you had this encroachment of the sea towards towards what's known as the terrestrial environments, and so there's obviously a huge range of possibilities for archaeological exploration, and I'm guessing that that. That's uh, that's what got you involved in this in the beginning, I guess. Oh yes, it was really it was really exciting. In fact, actually, this area was very different from others. Uh, for example, the Mid Atlantic area where I work now. In the case in the, in Washington State, since the area had been had been depressed, and um, what happened was immediately after glaciation, the, the crust was was rebounding, was rising more rapidly at the beginning, and then tapered off through time. So what happened was that the earliest shorelines were actually exposed above sea level, and then they dropped to a period where, where, where sea level was below the present and then came back up again. So it was really quite exciting, and for me to do a master's thesis on this was really exciting to me to be, to be developing new ideas and things which were really exciting for me to, to do.
So let's get you back to the evolution of your career, and and this on a personal note is is where I met Kurt Larson because both of us are actually trained in this particular area of expertise, geoarchaeology. And I know that when I was a younger graduate student, uh, Kurt had been in the department at the University of Chicago for quite a while, and both of us had interests that naturally sort of gravitated towards the Middle East. So let me bring you back in in here and let's talk about that convergence of interests in the Middle East, the sea level studies, and what you were doing at the University of Chicago. Well, first of all, I mean, I was uh, accepted for, for, for work on my doctorate at the University of Chicago, which was very exciting to me as well, uh, because I went there to study with um, Professor Carl Butzer, who was, who was uh, one of the leading uh, proponents of the field of geoarchaeology at the time. Uh, when I got to Chicago, I was originally interested in working in the Hudson's Bay region, which was another area where, where, where uh, isostatic or uh, rebounding after glaciation was was raising shorelines, and I was wanted to work on on things that were similar, or which were familiar with me from Washington State. But I was sort of advised by some other friends in the department that I should really take a course by Professor Robert McCormick Adams, who has uh, was an archaeology working in in Iraq, uh, and I was introduced to to his courses, to his coursework. I took my first course, and I became interested, and I found out work on the Persian Gulf region. And once again, I looked at the area of, of, of sea level issues, and it was very clear that, like uh, other areas in the world, during the maximum glaciation when sea levels were 300 feet lower, the entire floor of the Persian Gulf had been exposed to human habitation. And this is also one of the key areas for understanding the rise of early civilizations, both in Mesopotamia and in the Indus Valley, a little bit further to the east in present Pakistan and India. So I began to look at the impact of sea level on, on what would happen in the Persian Gulf region and how it might apply to understanding the archaeological sites and the, and the human development just prior to the formation of the first city-states in, in southern Iraq. And uh, quite in- interestingly enough, I was I was I found work by Danish archaeologists who had been working in the island of Bahrain, and found their work initial work very fascinating, and found that there were in fact raised beach ridges on the eastern coast of Saudi Arabia, which contained Ubaid period sites, uh, which are the immediate predecessor to the first uh, city states of Samaria in southern in, in southern Iraq. Um, so you're talking about 3000 BC or so. Yeah, so we're talking about 3000 BC. So it was really fascinating and and Professor Adams said this is a nice really great idea. Why don't you go and see if you can find a dissertation topic out there? I have a little bit of extra money here left over from a grant and I'd be willing to pay your way out there to look it over for a dissertation. So I said sure, I'll do this. <laughs> so I I I um got on the plane, went to Bahrain, the island of Bahrain, and spent a lot of time exploring this island, seeing if I could actually turn this into a, a viable dissertation topic. Uh, and that's what I did. I came back uh, and explained my ideas, wrote a dissertation proposal, and then uh, attempted to go back at a later date to spend a great deal of time there and work this into a doctoral dissertation. 
So tell us a little bit about what were the initial findings that you made, what was the connection that you established between these ancient beach ridges or, or raised platforms and the artifacts themselves, and how did you start to formulate a theory on the connection between the movements of the sea and the distribution of the archaeology or the location of the settlements? How did, how did that work out for you? Well, actually, it didn't work out the way I expected it to work out. As, as Never things, does. As things Never does. go in this field. <laughs> Uh, yeah. and, 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 and when I first started to, to look at this thing, I, it was very clear that the whole area of eastern Saudi Arabia and the island of Bahrain were once uh, artesian water centers in the area. This was all water which had fallen as rainfall during the glacial periods and was in, was in aquifers and was being uh, spewed forth by springs along the coast. And there were all great numbers of these which were submerged springs, and I was had the grand idea that I was going to, as one person, go out and 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 scuba dive and and locate sites around these spring locations. Uh, that was clearly a, an impractical kind of thing, and I could right. have done that alone. Uh, when I got there, I decided that really the better thing to do was to really work on settlement pattern analyses. And so basically what I began to do was, was think of the fact that, that once sea levels had risen in the Persian Gulf, they essentially isolated what's now the island of Bahrain, and which was earlier simply a, a ridge, a structural ridge, which formed a, an oil-producing dome in the area and isolated it from the mainland of, of, of the Arabian Peninsula, making it a safe area for early trade to take place. So this was kind of a neat thing to do, was to, to, was to go through and study the placement of different archaeological sites on the island through time and to show fluctuations um, uh, in settlement on that island. The thing that was really significant and had very little to do with sea level at the time was that there was a particular artesian spring center on the northeast corner of this island Around which most of the settlement was was present over the uh, five thousand year history of, of of settlement on that island. And, and what, so, was the spring was the spring was the central component of what drew people to it and what caused the settlement to actually emerge, right? Absolutely. So, so the settlement was all the settlements. The initial settlements were were clustered around the many springs in this part of the island. And what happened was, through time, you would find expansions and contractions of settlement on the island, both far away from this, this artesian center and then, and then retracting to that artesian center again. So it was very, very fascinating because you could begin to link these types of, of changes to both the economics of the period, when there was, when there was trading going on between the um, uh, major economic centers of the time in the Indus, of the time at, in the Indus Valley, and in southern Mesopotamia. And it was kind of really exciting because you could see that when the trade network was operating, that you would find this great expansion of a settlement throughout the island, even into the areas which were uh, less conducive to habitation and farther away from the water sources, uh, and then contracting again when, when, when the economic system seemed to deteriorate again. It's always and so, and so you, developed, you developed your model based on that, um, and, and you were able to generate some pretty interesting interpretations on that score, right? 
Yeah, so it was it was really quite interesting, and 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 we both tried to we thought about linking these things with with past climate changes in the regions, but in fact it was very hard to do that because we had very very little uh, paleoclimate data. And on that note, uh, I think we're going to drop into a break for right now, and uh, we will come back with uh, the geoarchaeologist Kurt Larson to discuss elements of his research and the emergence of his career as a geoarchaeologist after these messages. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Explore the power and beauty in yourself and in others. Tune in to The Stacy Stern Show, enriching you. Every week, Stacy Stern will connect you with men and women who are living and working from a place of passion. Stacy's guests include successful authors, filmmakers, actors, experts, and leaders. You'll hear what inspires each of them, and you'll be turned on to great films, books, and new media. Tune in to The Stacy Stern Show, enriching you, Tuesdays at noon Pacific, 3 p.m. Eastern, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Tune in to the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics, reaching a global community. Our experts come from all walks of life, and the topics they discuss are everything from current events, arts and entertainment, leadership, parenting, relationships, self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics. It's all about action. Scores. Taking a look at the NBA tonight. Highlights. He's broken loose. He's at the 30. And headlines. Big trade in the NFL this afternoon. When you are looking to talk sports, look no further than the Voice America Sports Network. We bring you some of the biggest names and all the sports news you can handle. Whether it's basketball. Off the glass. Football. Come on. Golf. Racing. Or the Olympics. We've got you covered. We'll even cover tailgating. Tune in to the Voice America Sports Network. It's all things sports. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com. Listening to Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. Or send an email to joseph.schuldenrein at gra geoarc.com. Now, back to the program. This is Joe Schuldenrein. We're back again on Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology, and we are talking about the evolution of a, a career in archaeology, and in this case, what we've been discussing with uh, one of my colleagues, Kurt Larson, is how two disciplines fuse to uh, result in, in an archaeological 
approach that is pretty much unique that, that various professionals practice in order to specialize and to provide information and to get research results th that are unique, again, by bridging two disciplines. Now, we had talked to Kurt about how he started with his graduate work uh, working in the island of, of Bahrain, and uh, he was able to establish a model that linked sea level change, uh, the distribution of archaeological sites, and ancient climate. And in, in this particular case, the sites were linked to a, a spring that was very dominant and obviously a source of water, which would have been an attractive source for, for people to uh, converge in this particular area. Uh, at, as you concluded your, your dissertation research, I know that you published a book on the Bahrain Islands in 1983, and then you finished your uh, graduate work, you got your PhD, and then what happened? Then what happened? Well, I, we should talk about first what happened before I got my PhD, because okay. because after coming back from from doing field work in Bahrain, I failed to mention that I do have a wife, and by that time we had three children, and so I was coming back and trying to figure out how to write a doctoral dissertation, and we all had to try to pull together and 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 and, and really try to figure out how we were going to stay alive because suddenly there was no income. And both my wife and I were scrambling, trying to do substitute teaching jobs. And I, in fact, worked in a liquor store at night trying to make enough money for all of us to stay alive. And like so many other archaeologists at the time, there were, there were virtually no academic jobs, no teaching positions, and even fewer for a person without a Ph.D. in hand. Uh, and, and, and fortuitously, I suppose, uh, I found that, that, that there was this new field of cultural resources management of what other people in the past had called contract archaeology, uh, which was going on, and I was hired by a consulting firm in Michigan to basically do cultural resource management as a part of their team, uh, looking at, at um, uh, various types of archaeological sites that were really needed to be looked at under the aegis of the National Historic Preservation Act and the, the National Environmental Protection Act, things required by federal regulations. So there was a job there, and we moved to Michigan and began to do work, and this cut my teeth on doing archaeology as well as geology in the Great Lakes region. And so that was your initial motivation to do this. Did you have you didn't have your PhD or working on it simultaneously, or you had just gotten that degree or what? Well, this is before I got that degree and before we did it, and I managed to write my dissertation while you know on you know while also working and my doing my initial cultural resource management work with a consulting firm in Michigan. In fact, I I I always joke about having written my my doctoral dissertation on. On long sheets of, of yellow paper, sitting in a chair while my kids were climbing all over me. So, uh, if, if people read my dissertation in my book and find strange things in there, maybe that's one of the reasons why. Wish we should uh, indicate that this is before the age of word processing. This so, before the age of word processing, that's very true. <laughs> mm -hmm. 
so how did how did the cultural resource management field assist you in merging your interests in in geology and archaeology? Was there at that time a need or a desire on the part of uh, compliance archaeologists and compliance officers uh, to merge these two fields, and did they see a benefit in doing that? No, there was no there, there was no you know open uh, requirement for that. It was simply as a part of our group. It was it was valuable to have someone who actually had on the ground geological training who could go out and look at sites and try to put them in a context uh, that made sense. And in the case of the areas in which we worked, and largely the Great Lakes area, uh, I had previously done work on on lake level changes and crustal movements in the Great Lakes which gave us a great advantage in trying to understand uh, the placement of, of, of riverine archaeological sites in areas around the Great Lakes shorelines. Well, I think one of the things that you did in the course of your career is that you alerted planners and people and people in management fields and, and agencies to the relationship between the distribution of, of archaeological sites on the edges of the Great Lakes and uh, the changing uh, behavior of those lakes themselves so that planners in parks and in areas associated with uh, recreation areas like the Great Lakes would be sensitized to uh, to the possible destruction of archaeological sites if uh, they went ahead and did whatever it is they were going to do in terms of planning, uh, that they had to take this into account and that there was actually a systematic relationship between archaeological site distributions and the changing shorelines and why don't you tell us a little bit about that work because you're well known for that well i mean it it, it was, the great lakes are kind of a unique situation because in their glacial history it's it's this was another area that were that was greatly where the crust was greatly depressed by glaciers as they advanced into uh northern the northern united states and what had happened is after glaciers had retreated i mean the areas of the great lakes basin were greatly depressed so that Unlike the present, where the Great Lakes drain southward, you know, uh, uh, to the Gulf of St. Lawrence, the earlier outlets of the Great Lakes were were in the north in this depression, and they drained to the to the north into a lowered area, and the lake levels consequently were much lower than they are than than, than they are at present. So through time, as the crust rebounded and moved upwards. It kept rising the lake levels until the lakes eventually drained out of the southern outlets again into the Gulf of St. Lawrence. Um, so there's a long period when the Great Lakes levels were much lower than the present. And during this time, you know, human habitation was, was there in areas which are now underwater. The thing that's what's very unique is we know that the river systems in the, in the Great Lakes were all deeply incised as they tried to reach the base level of the lakes uh, in the past so that then as the lakes rose the deposits that were that, that were that were being deposited along the shores of those river systems progressively built up through time and any habitation sites uh, which were there were buried by the, the alluvial sediments that was being formed by overbank flooding and when you got to really the record of the past four to 5,000 years, we could find that there were more deeply stratified archaeological sites in the alluvial terraces along the river systems. And we alerted 
other archaeologists that they really had to do deep testing of these alluvial terraces to look for these earlier archaeological sites. And that was quite productive, and it was demonstrated by, in this case, in Michigan, by by colleagues from Michigan State University and the University of Michigan. So you were basically able to demonstrate a connection between flooding patterns, archaeological occupations, and that the potential for recovering these sites was in large measure a reflection of the geological processes that were operational at those particular points in time, and then you could sort of develop a roadmap for figuring out where the sites might be in a very systematic fashion. Absolutely. That's it, that's, that's it in a nutshell. So, so there you are, uh, basically transferring your methodological skills, for lack of a better word, from one part of the world to another, and you're sort of on the way to sort of, ex- in a sense, expanding your job possibilities because you've extended the reach of your academic expertise into more applied situations that involve, involve planners, that involved environmentalists, that involved uh, cultural resource managers, and you've already developed sort of a nice resume on what you can do, and then all of a sudden Kurt Larson goes to the federal government, and then what happens? And then what happens? Well, well first of all, I mean... Uh I was. I became aware that the U.S. Geological Survey was looking for someone uh, in their Environmental Affairs office who had a background in both archaeology and geology, who might be able to help them in in writing environmental impact statements for work that was then to be carried out what, what, with with what used to be called the Office of Surface Mining, so that there were federal mining sites which needed to have environmental impact statements written. And I decided, well, this is a good a good chance for me to do this and and to really change positions and look for a more permanent job. Uh, and so I applied for this job with the U.S. Geological Survey and fortunately got the job uh, um, and began doing this this work with USGS. Became at that time the historic preservation officer for the U.S. Geological Survey for a brief period until after 1980 when most of the environmental programs uh, in the USGS were abolished for political reasons. Um, and I was absorbed into the research, the geological research division at that USGS. And the interest there was is that I had done coastal studies and I had worked beaches, and there was a minerals program which basically studied mineral deposits on ancient beaches. So I was sort of a natural for this because I had studied ancient beaches. I mean, the minerals we should think about, I guess we should throw this out as an aside, is that our resources for minerals like titanium, for example, are derived from, from, from sands in ancient beach deposits. So it was one of the major things for, for companies around the world to be prospecting for ancient ancient beach deposits, looking for titanium-rich sands. So I was kind of a, you know, kind of led into once again coastal research through minerals program research in USGS. The really good thing was is that I was also able to keep working in the Great Lakes region and develop some of the original ideas that I had worked on in the Great Lakes. So at this point, the geology is bringing you back into into this professional world, right? Because you're in the, involved with the mineral resource exploration program, and then all of a sudden, uh, you're sort of segueing out of archaeology, sort of 
into geology and then um, you're effectively being a researcher here or how is that working? Yeah, basically I'm being a researcher in, in, in geology, both in minerals, but as I mentioned earlier, fortunately I was also able to conduct some of my earlier work in the Great Lakes region on crustal movements and, and lake level changes, which was really useful. Uh, in trying to look at the reconstruct the past of lake level changes related to to climate change in the Great Lakes region, so that was also very rewarding, and it was also related to the kinds of archaeological work that we had done in the Great Lakes earlier on. And the U.S. Geological Survey found it worthwhile for you to continue uh, pursuing both ends of this type of work, right? The exploration material and the climate change and quasi geoarchaeological research as well. Yeah, I mean, basically, uh, as long as as the major portions of my work related to my to my projects and my jobs and my and my geological research, it was possible to weave in a little bit of archaeology along the edges. So, so I didn't really totally divorce myself from my archaeological interests or background. Did you feel that it was fading or not? Uh, my archaeological work. Well, yeah. I mean, I never really lost my passion for it. I mean, I think the the one thing that all of us who have been involved in archaeology have to agree on is that we tend to view, you know, archaeology as really a passion and something we do passionately. So, uh, you know, I, I never really, you know, was diverted away from that. It was always there, and 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 my a lot of my desires were to continue on with that. So here we are, say, uh, 30 years later, and you've done all this work both on the Great Lakes and in a variety of uh, marine and maritime environments looking at the changes in rising sea levels and and how that affects archaeology and settlement. And now here we are in the age of, of global warming, and it just seems very natural that there is a very compelling need, for lack of a better word, to understand these relationships because rising sea level is obviously linked to the uh, feedback loop of climatic change. And why don't you tell us what you know and what we've learned about the changing relationship between archaeological sites, their distributions, and patterns of sea level rise, because you've been a pioneer in this field. Well, I mean, I'm trying to figure out an easy way to answer that. We know, for example, that, you know, that... um, as I mentioned earlier, that we have to think of, of human habitation as really being uh, governed by the placement of, 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 of food resources as well as fresh water, and clearly our, our river systems are, are, are key to understanding that, and our river systems respond critically to their base levels, and in that case, it's the sea level for most of the river systems that drain at least the east coast of our country, as well as the other coasts as well. But since I'm working on the east coast, it's easier for me to talk about that. Uh, it's um, really sort of um, exciting to, you know, to try to reconstruct different environments, to try to reconstruct the rates of sea level rise uh, here on the east coast, and to try to reconstruct former shoreline positions to try to understand where where former habitation sites may have been, uh, that's really a lot of fun, and and I've spent some time trying to really work out the detailed uh, sea level history in the Chesapeake Bay region, as well as in the area of the New York Bight around New York Harbor, uh, looking at and uh, reconstructing the rate of sea level rise. 
and you've been able to integrate this with archaeological site distributions as well and it it has a very strong practical applications when when planners are trying to redesign uh harbors and not redesign harbors but to um, develop uh models for uh which areas will get flooded and which areas need to be cleaned because of navigation interests and the cultural resources have to be preserved uh under the aegis of the National Historic Preservation Act so we can develop sort of systematic models looking at the complex relationship between sites and sea level uh and i think you would also have some uh, major insights as to uh future sea level rise possibilities and how that might be related to climatic change uh do you want to talk about that a little bit yeah just very briefly uh uh, well, we all know, for example, that, that, that the whole topic of global warming is, is a hot one these days, and, and it oftentimes depends on, on which side of the political argument you may be, and, and, and too frequently uh, people shy away from the real scientific databases that are, that are out there. Uh, basically, one of the things that we're, we're concerned with right now are uh, the potential acceleration in sea level rise uh, due to predicted future global warming and that in, and, and, and that's partially related to uh, things like uh, expansion in the volume of seawater as the at the seawater itself warms and expands in volume the other things that we're concerned about is the more rapid wasting of the existing glaciers and how rapidly uh, they provide more water to the ocean basins therefore increasing well, this this is a this is a critical area that we we really do want to talk about. Uh, we're going to break uh, immediately, but when we get back, I would like to talk to you in greater length uh, the, on the sort of the dynamics of sea level rise, the expectation for sea level rise, how they relate to archaeology, and how they may eventually affect us as uh, as we confront a world world in which global warming seems to be an imminent threat. We'll be back after these words. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. Step into the doorway to conscious choice, greater health, and well-being. Attain the balance that you've been seeking. Tune in and turn on 1111 Talk Radio. Feed the mind. Embrace positively. Release the tension. Step out of fear. Host Simran Singh will help you broaden your mind and open your heart toward a greater understanding of how to take charge of your life. 1111 Talk Radio is here every Thursday at 7 p.m. Eastern Time, 4 p.m. Pacific Time on 7th Wave Network. 1111 Talk Radio. Because shift happens. The latest business information is made simple with the Voice America Business Network. The professionals in the business world bring you live talk radio shows featuring an array of business topics, strategies for building wealth, sales and marketing, stock trading, investing, and business technology. Voice America business hosts are professionals in their fields and bring to the airwaves weekly business discussions that offer up-to-date information, advice, and education. The Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business talk. 
Go behind the scenes of what you see, hear, and read on the news. Learn the ins and outs of public relations on Stars of PR with Cindy R. Every Thursday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time. Cindy Rakowitz is a Clio Award winner and founder of Rock and Roll Public Relations who wants to share her PR experiences and knowledge with you. Learn how to handle a crisis, deal with celebrities, and become a terrific PR executive. Listen to the Stars of PR with Cindy R. Every Thursday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time here on News Talk Radio, voiceamerica.com. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to joseph.schuldenrein at gra-goarc.com. Now, back to the program. We're back. This is Joe Schuldenrein, and my special guest today is uh, Dr. Curtis Larson, recently retired from the United States Geo- Geological Survey. Kurt has uh, specialized in geoarchaeology for most of his career, and we have been talking about uh, the applications of this interdisciplinary field to contemporary problems. Obviously, most of the listenership is aware of the fact that climate change is a reality and that climate change has its uh, repercussions and manifestations in changing sea level rise and that the rate of sea level, uh, you've seen all these movies that indicate that uh, tomorrow New York City is going to be inundated and we're all going to be flooded out. Uh, Of course, that, that may be a bit of hyperbole, but certainly we're seeing that these trends are occurring and and Kurt why don't you give us a little more detailed information on what we're seeing right now with climate change and sea level rise and then swing it back on how the archaeology gives us some pointers and some guidelines on what what happened and what we might expect okay well what I'm going to do is is first uh, try to make a comparison since since climate change and sea level rise are sort of hot topics I want to first, you know, be able to talk about what's happening with our historic record of of, of sea level rise, and that's how we rec- how we recorded it in our tide gauges from our various uh, cities along the east coast, for example. Uh, we know, for example, that the relative rate of sea level rise for the areas between New York and and really North Carolina. Uh, it has been approximately three millimeters a year over the past century. That breaks out to being about an inch every decade or a foot per century. Uh, which is a lot. Which is a lot. And But the thing is, is this, what's really interesting is, for example, if you look at, at the USGS topographic maps that many people use uh, for all, all sorts of purposes, they were all made to a mean sea level at New York in 1929. Right. Okay, and and we know now that sea level has risen almost a foot since that time. So the reality is is that we look at our maps 
for those maps which show which are 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 made to a mean sea level of zero point per elevation, uh, which is now been inundated by a foot of sea level rise. So we know that even over our historic period, that sea level has risen a foot, and it really seems imperceptible, but when you look at it in low-lying areas, it really is significant because shorelines retreat very rapidly in low-lying coastal marshes, for example. Um, So that's one of of, of the things that that we need to look at. if we looked at some at the recent models by the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change of the United Nations, uh, we talk about perhaps a, a rise of, of an additional foot over the next by the end of this century. So let, let's say in relationship to where we are now, we may have a rise of two feet uh, above our present sea level, uh, and that is very very significant. And then if we look further at what other researchers are coming up with, we're looking at the more rapid melting of, of our glaciers in Greenland and in Antarctica. Uh, various researchers are adding more on top of that. Some of this is, is probably really uh, possible in the, in, the, in the very distant future, but we have to look at, 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 at rates uh, that will give us another foot two feet of, of sea level rise over the, of the century that we're currently in. If we want to put it in perspective, uh, I mentioned before that, that over the past, the 20th century, sea level has been rising about three millimeters a year. Uh, if we looked at it over the past 6,000 years, the, probably the average rate of relative sea level rise here on the eastern seaboard is about half that, or a millimeter and a half a year or six inches per century. And then if we were to go back earlier, when, when, when glaciers were really melting more rapidly and returning water to the ocean basins, our rates of rise were probably on the order of a centimeter a year, uh, which, would re- which really results in about a meter or three feet per century between, let's say, 18,000 years ago and about 8,000 years ago when the rate of sea level rise really began to slow in our eastern seaboard regions. And if you think about that, um, uh, three feet is, <laughs> three feet over a century is quite a bit. A, a centimeter a year uh, is, is, is also quite a bit. It's three times more rapid than, than, than we're experiencing right now, and that's the way, way it has been in the past. So in terms of perspective, uh, the rates of sea levels has changed, you know, quite drastically. I mean, we've, we think of these things in very tiny increments, but once again, uh, if we think at, at, at what we consider to be mean sea level, we always have to realize that mean sea level is changing constantly, and it's recalculated every 20 years as far as uh, uh, charting purposes. Uh, but let, for- let- Go ahead. Let's go back to this in, in a sense. I mean, obviously, the uh, what you're saying is that the rate of sea level rise right now, as we speak, is accelerating significantly. Correct? Well, that it, in in terms that depends on, on on the researchers. Some researchers uh, assert that that sea level began to accelerate in the mid or the late 19th centuries. Others right. others others claim that it really began accelerating. Uh, in the 1930s, uh, and still others, other sides of the argument say it hasn't happened at all. So we're we're confronted with you know with with 
with with these kinds of, of positions and arguments going on. Uh, we know that there's a vast body of information that uh, points to warming of the oceans, expansion of volume of the oceans, and and predictions as as to what we can expect to happen. Um, and, right. all, and, and all of these are going to be related to climate. They're all going to be related to climate change and ostensibly to warming climates. Well, putting it in, 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 in almost simplistic terms, we know that, uh, that anthropogenic or human-accelerated warming results in rapid melting of the glaciers, possibly at a rate that wouldn't have happened at this point in time had human impact not been as significant as it is. And, of course, the melting of the glaciers is really one of the most significant precursors to a rising sea level. So my question to you is, uh, what do you think, certainly, in terms of the accelerated sea level rise and human impacts? Uh, are you asking me about the human impacts upon on sea level rise or... The re- one those resulting from sea level rise, I guess. Those those uh, resulting and those affecting the actual models of sea level rise. How how significant do you think the role of human impact is on sea level rise? Well, I, one of the things that that my former intern and I examined back when I was still with USGS is that we know we have good records of the amount of and buildup of carbon dioxide in the Earth's atmosphere, and we began to just look at other things that might be related to this. And just for the heck of it, we decided, well, why don't we look at it and see if there's any way to really show whether these kinds of things like like uh, increases in CO2 are, are related in some way to anthropogenic changes. So what we did is we took United Nations data on global population and plotted these against the... Um, the concentration and increasing concentration of CO2 in the atmosphere and found out that there was almost a direct correspondence between the doubling rates of global population and CO2 in the atmosphere. Uh, wow. And, and, and so clearly, whatever is going on in the atmosphere has to be related in, in some way, albeit in a very complex way, with global population. Um, so, so there is a major impact here. There's a very major impact, and it's very hard to uh, try to figure out how we're going to deal with this. If you looked at the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change report, the most recent one, uh, they provide, you with, provide us with a various group of scenarios as to how to cope with this, and one of them assumes that, there's, you know, that um, uh, there would be business as usual and uh, in other words, things will simply continue on at the rate they're going now, at the doubling rates. Others are talking about that, that, that for some reason there will be a, a decrease in population growth during this current century and, and a very, various other types of scenarios. But it's really striking, you know, to, to deal with people who disclaim the connection between this type of climate change and human uh, drivers. And when you look at right. look at these two curves, and you see global population and CO2 in the atmosphere doubling at virtually the same rates over the past century and a half, it's very a very striking comparison. And it's also related, I would imagine, to not just human population growth, but also increased industrialization oh, yeah. and increased. Yeah, clearly. I mean, it's also what people are doing, not just the fact that there are more of them. I guess. Absolutely, absolutely. 
Uh, I guess one of the other really practical things, I mean, for those of you who are in the New York area, I mean, it's it, it, there were concerns over the the, the passing uh, the past couple of months of Hurricane Irene and the impacts potential impacts on the subway system uh, with with possible flooding of, of, of the subway system by by um, uh, higher than normal tides driven by um, dri- driven by the hurricanes. And if you consider these things on top of let's say a foot of sea level rise. We have to realize that our engineering systems were built to, to uh, criteria uh, that are long out of date. They, have, they haven't they haven't responded to the to you know to the rising sea levels that that from the initial time when they were built. Wow! So uh, so those are some scary thoughts. Um, on that note, I guess we are going to uh, have to wrap this up, and I want to thank my very special guest and good friend, Kurt Larson, for acquainting our listenership and our general audience in gen- uh, for yet another direction that archaeological research has taken, and especially in this particular case, the applications of that research to contemporary situations and the potential we have for interpreting that kind of information for planning purposes. We'll be back a week from today for a very special episode. As uh, many of you may know, the ancient Dead Sea Scrolls of Biblical fame have recently been introduced to the greater public for viewing after many, many years of limited circulation within the professional community. My guest will be Dr. Lawrence Schiffman, one of the leading scholars in the deciphering and interpretation of these ancient biblical texts. You won't want to miss this program. Until then, thanks so much for listening, and remember that your understanding of the past is a guide to a more promising tomorrow. We will see you next time. Thanks for listening, and good evening to you. Thanks again for tuning in to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Please join us for another unique journey into the past next Wednesday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. In the meantime, think about the past with an eye towards the future and a better tomorrow. Tomorrow.